Good morning, everyone, and happy Sabbath. Good morning, Downers Grove. Yeah, what a beautiful church you have here. Yeah, uh, you have to understand that coming from England, yeah, the only places that have car parks like this are supermarkets. Yeah, so we're, I'm always in shock. You know, that I don't have to uh, <coughs> park in front somebody's front garden to actually um, park outside the church, which is what it's like in England. So it's a real pleasure to be with you. And uh, I hear that you had my brother here. And he told me good things. And um, I know that we will have a blessed Sabbath today. Uh, thank you for Sabbath school. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed our discussion. Yeah, it was uh, fantastic. It just tells you that the Christian faith is something that you can really chew on, you know. It's intellectually stimulating and it satisfies the heart. And thank you for that. Thank you for the music as well and how you sang Fairest Lord Jesus. When I heard that, I thought, Lord, I want this at my funeral. Yeah, it's that good a song. Yes. Uh, I, I should uh, let you know that I've got two friends here already. Um, and um, you know them by Andrew and, Ma- uh, and Margaret, but their real names are not that. You know that, don't you? Yeah, really, their names are Andre and Gosha. Can you say that with me? Andre and Gosha. You see, it's actually quite easy, isn't it? Yeah, we could actually just call them Andre and Gosha. Yeah, Mao Gojata. What a beautiful name. Yes, and uh, uh, many years ago when I was a young man, I was um, a student mission in Poland for two years, and that's where I met Andre and Gosha. And uh, in fact, um, I was one of the signatories at their wedding. So just in case you were wondering whether they are married... I can tell you they are. Okay, you have it on a pastor's authority. Yeah, they are uh, man and wife in good and regular standing, as far as I know. But, um, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, uh, it's uh, my privilege to open God's Word. Now, it's my first sermon here, and it may be my last, but uh, because it's my first sermon, I'm going to give you two sermons for the price of one. Yeah, buy one, get one free. Yes, or in English, as we say, bog off. Yes, uh, You're going to get two for the price of one. Uh, the first sermon I'm going to give you is only a short one, but it's a very important one, and this is the one I want you to remember. Yeah? The, re- the other one will be good, but this one uh, I want you to learn, and I'm going to check. If ever I come back again, I want to check whether you remember what I'm just going to teach you, okay? So, here is why I am... A Seventh-day Adventist. You're hoping that somebody from the seminary knows why they're a Seventh-day Adventist, don't you? Well, here is why I am a Seventh-day Adventist. If you just hold up your hands, how many fingers and thumb do you have? Five? So this is why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm going to give you five reasons why I am a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm going to take it from one of my favorite books. I'm not going to preach on this today. I'm preaching on Hebrews. But this is why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. In the Gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus shares who he is with the disciples, he uses a Son of Man saying. The Son of Man is this, or the Son of Man is that. These are the key statements in the Gospel. If you want to know who Jesus is, you find these statements, and they're easy to find. Two Plus 8 equals what? Chapter 2. Go to chapter 8, and then where do we go? Chapter 10. It's very easy. 
How many statements? Five. Which chapters? Two plus eight equals ten. So this is why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Jesus shared these statements, the Son of Man is. These are statements you need to underline in your Bible. If you want the essence of who Jesus is, learn these statements and share them with your neighbor. This is why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. What was the first chapter? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, you remember the story. I don't need to read these verses because you know them. You remember the story of the paralytic who was let down through the roof, and then Jesus said to that, that young man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you remember the response, blasphemy. And what did Jesus say? The Son of Man has authority to do what? To forgive sins. The Son of Man forgives sins. If you stay in the chapter and go to the very end, you'll have the story of Jesus walking on the Sabbath through the wheat fields with his disciples, and they start to rub corn. And you remember how the Pharisees started to object. And then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is what? Lord also of the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man, first, forgives sins. Second, he's Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 2. What's the next chapter? Chapter 8. We go to chapter 8. And there you will find this great statement. We were looking at an equivalent in Sabbath school. Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man must be betrayed handed over, crucified, and on the third day he would rise again. So there you have the third statement. The Son of Man forgives sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man died and rose again. And then we go to the end of chapter 8. So 2 plus 8, we're still in chapter 8. And at the very, very end of chapter 8, he tells them that the Son of Man will come in the clouds of glory. What event are we talking about? The second coming. The Son of Man will return. So, let's run through those once more. The Son of Man forgives sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man died and rose again. The Son of Man will return, and in the final statement, what chapter? 2 plus 8 equals 10. We go to chapter 10, and there we find that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There you have his ethos of ministry. I came to serve rather than to be served. Press wrong button. Let's start that again. So there you have the Son of Man statements. Forgive sins, is Lord of the Sabbath, died and rose again. He will return, and he came to serve and not be served. And my suggestion is, is that if you can remember those five statements, you have got pretty much Christianity sorted. Those are the key identities of Jesus. And you know why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist is is that when I look at Christendom, do most Christians believe that they are forgiven? I think they do. Do most Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again? I think they do. 
Do most Christians believe that it's better to serve than be served? I think they do. Do most Christians believe that Jesus is coming again? More and more believe that. We're on the winning side of that argument. Jesus is returning. You only have to look at the headlines. Do most Christians believe that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? No. And this is why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, is that I want to follow Jesus in all his fullness. That's my purpose, to take his self-definition from his own lips and to be true to that definition. And you can see that the Sabbath for Jesus is up with forgiveness. Am I a legalist because I'm an Adventist? No. I believe that the Son of Man has forgiven my sins. I am free of guilt. I live with Sabbath rest. I believe that there is hope in my life. Resurrection hope. I believe there's hope for the world that he will return again. And I believe that there's an antidote to the selfishness of the modern existence. Better to serve than to be served. So I am a Seventh-day Adventist because I want to be as close to my Lord as possible. There's your first sermon. Uh, I told you I was going to give you two. So here is the second one. And uh, while I'm sharing this one, I'm going to preach from you this morning from Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the most difficult books in the New Testament. But why we're going to go to Hebrews is for this reason, is that for many Christians... They come to faith, and then after a couple of years, they go through a crisis, and they come to the conclusion that Christianity has failed to deliver on its promises. What I would like to do today is to share with you your legal rights before the Lord. If you know what God has promised to do in your life, then you can hold him to account There are many things he has not promised to do. Has the Lord promised to help me to win the national lottery? So once I know that, if I start praying, Lord, you know, I'm paying my tithe. How come I haven't won the lottery yet? It's simply because he's never promised to help me win the lottery. Although, I have to confess, even as a pastor, occasionally, yes, it was always for the church building fund. I'd make a good contribution, you know. You know, <clears throat> and uh, you know, my dad was a pastor, and uh, uh, every year we have this grand national horse race. And uh, uh, my dad was always busy building churches. And at that point in the year, he'd always say, "Why didn't we put our church building fund on that horse? We would have won. Yes, and uh, we wouldn't have to worry." So, for the Christian, I would suggest it is really important that we align our expectations of what God has promised to do in our lives with what Scripture says. And then we know our rights. And then we know what we can expect our experience to be. So this morning, I'm going to preach to you about your rights as a Christian, the new covenant. This is, we're talking law this morning. And if you read Hebrews you will find that it is full of ancient legal terminology. Let me share two verses with you. 
Hebrews 10 verse 29 talks about the blood of the covenant. We go to Hebrews 13 verse 20 and we have the same thing. The blood of the eternal covenant. I would suggest to you that Hebrews is a legal book sharing with you your rights before God. Why is it necessary to know your rights? Now, let me share a little illustration with you. Yeah, that's just to remind me who I'm married to. Uh, uh, <coughs> this is my wife, Sarah, who comes with me. And uh, the, the boy on the, my left, your right, is called Mark. Okay? And uh, when he was born, we did a DIY. Do you know what DIY is? Yeah, do it yourself. Okay, do you have DIY? We have in England, where I used to live. I'm going through the slow process of acclimatization. Uh, But we have DIY shops. And uh, what happened was, my wife was heavily pregnant. She was with child. And um, she, we we went that morning for a walk. We walked the dog in the park, and then uh, we came back, and uh, I was pastoring at the time, and I was doing my work, and, and then she said, Cedric, I think the baby's coming. I thought, okay, yes, well, let's phone the, uh, uh, the, the hospital, we phoned the hospital, and we put my wife on the phone, and uh, they said, no, she's fine, don't bring her in, just tell her to relax. Well, we did that two more times, until my wife shouted to me, she said, Cedric, come, the baby is coming. And so I went from the office into the bedroom, and there she was, on the so I phoned 999, which is the equivalent of 991. I phoned 999 and uh, made sure I got the right number. And um, just in case you you, you think that I'm a brave person, just in case you've got the wrong image of me, okay? My knees were doing this, okay? Only a little faster, okay? And I was like this, and I had the phone, and the ambulance lady was telling me what to do, she said, uh, you know, get your wife a certain position. And out came this, this slippery, wet thing, and I caught it. Yes? And uh, it was like catching a wet rugby ball. Okay? Or uh, an American football. That, yeah. So I caught this thing, and then now what do I do? Put it down, and then there was a knock at the door, and the ambulance had arrived. Took her off to hospital, and I... Uh, Went and made sure she was okay, and then I was doing some. Uh, and and uh, uh, before I left her, I, I, I asked Sarah, what are we going to call this boy? And we had an agreement. I mean, it was basically imposed by me. Uh, if it was a boy, I would name it. If it was a girl, she would name it. That's fair, isn't it? Totally fair. Mark, Gospel, New Testament, very good. And then one middle name from my family, so one of his middle names is Conrad. You know where that comes from? And then I asked Sarah, Sarah, what name would you like? And she said, Cadus. I thought, okay. So off I went down to the registry office where we register births, and I got his birth certificate, and I came back with it to my wife, and I showed it to Sarah, and she read it, Mark, Catus, Conrad, Vine. And do you know what her response was? I didn't say Catus. 
I said, Kedus. Oh. Okay. Katus, Kedus. She wasn't best pleased. Yeah. This is the problem with law. It holds you to account. I thought, what do I do? So I went home, and these were the days when we had Google, and I typed in Katus just to see what it meant, and it came up in Estonian. Now, that's quite... I thought, well, that's halfway there. You know, I'm from England. That begins with E. She's from Ethiopia. That begins with E. And Estonia also begins with E. So we're halfway home. Katus. In Estonian, it means roof. Hmm. Now, I've been to Estonia once, and they have excellent roofs. Yeah, excellent roofs. So I thought, well, okay, this is good. You know, I can call my son Roof. But Sarah wasn't best pleased about this. And I imagined, you know, for future years, the, uh, the difficult situations my son would be in at school. Mark, Katus Konradvine, Katus, Mark, where does that name come from? Estonia. Oh, that's interesting, Mark. Are you Estonian? No, my mum's English, uh, Ethiopian, and my dad's English. You know, it would just give him hassle. So I went back to the registry, and I pleaded with him, please, can we change this? And she said, Pastor Vine, this is a legal document. Can't change it. Mark Gattis Vine. I pleaded with her, and she was a friend of mine because we did all our weddings with this lady. And she says, well, maybe, maybe we can send it off to the Registrar General in London, and maybe he will change it for us. And that's what we did. She sent it off to London, and we got it back. And now his name is Mark Catus Conrad Vine, footnote, changed on the authority of the Registrar General, date from Mark Catus Conrad Vine to Mark Kedus Conrad Vine. That was good. This poor little child, already he's got a disputed identity, and he's just a couple of days old. Yes? And, uh, you know, it actually gets worse, because when I sent off for his Irish citizenship, they didn't see the footnote. Yeah? So in his Irish citizenship, he is Mark Catus Conrad Vine, and in his British, he is Mark Catus Conrad Vine, footnote Catus Conrad Vine. Legal documents, they hold you to account. What we are reading here in Hebrews is law. And if you want surety in life, get it written down in a legal document. Isn't that the case? If you want to buy a house, what do you do? You sign a contract. If you want to get a stable relationship to move from romance to a long-time relationship, what do you do? You do what we did in our household. When we propose in the Vine household, we ask our girlfriends, we say, Dear, I've grown rather fond of you. Would you like to formalize our, our relationship legally? And usually, a woman cannot refuse such an offer like that. You know? <clears throat> to have it in law gives you surety and security. If you want to know your rights before God, find out the legal document that shapes the Christian experience. This is what I'm going to share with you this morning. We have other legal imagery. In chapter 10, verse 22, we read this. 
Let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, sprinkling. I want you to keep this imagery in mind. Chapter 12, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, sprinkling, blood of the new covenant. Where does all this imagery come from? If you know your Old Testament, you'll go with me to Exodus 24. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. And there we have an account of the signing of a legal document, a covenant. And I want us to note very carefully the process that takes place. Because when we come back to Hebrews, we'll find that the same process uh, is found there. We're in Exodus verse tw- chapter 24. You remember Exodus 19. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, what does God give him? The Ten Commandments. And then he's given a heap of laws. Chapter 21, 22, 23. And now we come to chapter 24. We've had the statement, the summary statement, the Ten Commandments. And then we've had the small print, the next chapters. And now we've come to the signing process. And note how the signing process occurs. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve pillars corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's just unpack that for a few moments. What is the process? First, Moses comes along and he verbally tells them, These are the words of the covenant. And how did Israel respond? We hear and we will do. We agree. And so then Moses sets up an altar and 12 posts. Who do the posts represent? 12 tribes of Israel. This is where you're going to sign on the dotted line. Who do you think the altar represents? I would suggest it represents God. We've got two parties making an agreement here. And then... Just to make sure they get it. Well, actually, he does something. He sacrifices these animals and he catches the blood. And then he takes the blood and he splatters it on the altar. God has signed up for this covenant. And then he comes to the people again. And having written down the covenant, he shares the covenant again. So how many times have they heard the covenant? Twice. 
And then he asks them, are you going to sign? And they say, oh, yes, we are going to do this. And how, does he, how do they sign? He gets the blood, and he sprinkles the blood upon them. There you have the signing of the covenant. Do you know, it's always good to read legal documents, isn't it? Now, I got a surprise this week. I was, um, <clears throat> I thought uh, I'd better, having come to, to the States, you know, I realized you, you have something, you have to have something in the U.S. which we don't need in England. You have to have a credit history here. Isn't that so? Yeah, if you want to get a mortgage, yeah, unless you've got cash, yeah, you've got to have a credit history to get a mortgage. Yeah, and it takes us now six months, we've been told, maybe up to a year yeah, to get a credit history. And uh, I sat down on, um, and, and so, you know, I'm suddenly in my life, for the first time, I'm desperate to get credit cards. Yeah, I hate them. Yeah, they're the bane of people's lives. Yeah, and uh, I was going through my documents, and I was thinking, okay, I've got one with Fifth Third. Have you heard of that bank? Fifth Third, okay. They're my bank. And then I looked at this, this, this credit card statement, and I thought, this is odd. It says Credit One at the top. But my other credit card is Capital One. Ah. Oh, dear. Do you know what I had done? Without realizing it, I had cut up my Capital One card thinking that they'd increased my limit yes, and given me a nice silver card instead of a dark gray one. I, haven't even, I hadn't even noticed that I'd suddenly got a credit card from a different company, yeah, which required 75 bucks yeah, for a year with Credit One. So without even realizing it, somehow I had signed up for a new credit card. Yeah, don't do it. Read the small print. How many times did Moses repeat the law, the covenant to Israel? Twice. Did they go into this blind? No. They knew exactly what they were signing up for. Moses shared first time, and then he repeated it again. And guess what? When we come to Hebrews, we have a new covenant It is signed in a similar manner. Go with me to chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 18. And there we have an allusion to the very passage that we have just read. Hebrews 9, verse 18, we read, Hence not even the first covenant, that's what we've just been reading about in Exodus 24, Hence not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, For when every commandment had been told to all the people by Moses, in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And then he goes on to say, If this is the way it was with the first covenant, guess what? It's got to be the same way with the second covenant. And so... As we read Hebrews, we shouldn't be surprised that in Hebrews, as we had in our scripture reading, we have the new covenant. How many times was the new covenant shared with the Israelites? Twice. How many times do you find the new covenant in Hebrews? 
twice. We've got echo illusion parallel going on here between Exodus and Hebrews. We have, as we read, the new covenant. I would suggest to you that, and I was uh, scratching my head thinking, you know, this document is foundational to Christianity. Why doesn't it have the status of the Ten Commandments? Why doesn't it have the status of the Lord's Prayer? These, this is the document which states your legal rights before God. Four elements. I will put my laws in their minds and understanding and write them in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall be my people. They shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Four statements. Your first reading is in chapter 8. If you turn over in your Bibles to chapter 10 and go to verse 15 and 16, we read, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. And here is the covenant. We then read, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. How many times do we have the new covenant in Hebrews? Twice. It talks about the blood of the covenant. It talks about sprinkling. Chapter 9 takes us back to Exodus 24. Here you have a signing of a legal agreement, setting out your rights before God. So let's have a look at your rights. Back to chapter 8, where we have the new covenant. Let me briefly say a couple of words about each statement that we have here. The first one, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Why is it that you need the laws of God to be written in your hearts? Why is it? Have you noticed that most of us can live without laws until something goes wrong? Have you noticed that? Most of us can live without laws until something goes wrong. Back in the early 90s, I remember an incident where an American pit bull terrier, do you know these things? Pit bulls? Yeah, they were an American import into the UK. And someone owned an, uh, an American pit bull terrier, one of these dogs bred for, for, for fighting. And this dog savaged the owner's child and killed the child. And suddenly, Parliament yeah, thought, we need a law. We need the Dangerous Dog Act. And so we ended up with a new law and all American pit bulls had to be put down. Same with the Mastiffs and a number of uh, Rottweilers. Why did we have to bring in the law? Because of a lack of control of that dog. Why do we need laws? Why do we need external laws? Why do the, the Senate and the Congress and parliaments, why do they need to make laws? Basically because... We don't have laws written on our hearts. If you have law written on your heart, you don't need it written in the statute books. 
because you have internal self-governance. You have internal self-regulation. You have a value system that guides you. What is God promising to do? He's promising to take the law which in the Old Testament is written, and he's saying it's not just going to be a written code, but now it's going to be internalized. It's going to become part of your internal DNA. It's going to be part of the way you think. It's going to be part of your value system. And if it's there, the paradox is, if you have law, biblical law, and what's the purpose of the law? It's really to make us to reflect who Christ is and his character. If you have his character written on your heart, the paradox is you need fewer regulations, written regulations. I will do what? Put my laws in their minds and understanding and write them on their hearts. Here we are talking about individual internal transformation. The second clause of our covenant, our legal rights, is I will be their God and they will be my people. You've heard of C.S. Lewis? He wrote a book called The Four Loves. And in that book... Now, he's the, the author of the Narnia series. Now, in that book, he makes this argument that if you want to know God, you actually have to get multiple points of view on who he is. Yeah? Who is Cedric Vine? Who is he? If you want to know me in totality, who would be the best person to go to first? Probably my wife. I've actually known my dog longer. Okay? But you go to my wife. She knows me as husband, for better or for worse. And then who would you go to? Maybe the sons, John and Mark. And there you would get the perspective of what I'm like as a father. Maybe you then go to my parents and get their perspective of what I'm like as a son. And then maybe my brother. And then you would go outside of my family. You might ask the neighbors, what's that chap like? You might ask my work colleagues at the seminary, what's he like to work for? You might ask the checkout girl at Walmart. You might ask the doctor. And you put all of these together, and if you want to know who I am, you've got to get everybody's opinion, don't you? To understand the totality of who I am, you've got to ask hundreds and hundreds of people. If you want to know who God is, you have to be in community. I will be their God, and they shall be my what? My people. God reveals himself. Not just to individuals, but he reveals himself at the church level. We think of Paul's idea of the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts, does any one individual get all the gifts? No. They are given to the church. So if I want to know everything about God, if I want to know his complete revelation, where do I need to be? Amongst God's people. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
We need a communal experience. This is what he is promising to do. But then we move on. We have individual experience. And they shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You know, he's talking to the Hebrews. And if you were a Hebrew and you wanted to know about God, where did you go? To the priests, to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law. And now he's saying, no, each one of us will have our own revelation. And how does God reveal himself to us as individuals? You know, this church architecturally just lifts your spirits, doesn't it? The sun's streaming in both sides and you look out and what can you see? The trees. God reveals himself through nature. Now, moving to the States, I've had to buy the two books on birds. You have such colorful birds here. Yeah, you probably don't realize this. Yeah? But the little robins, they're everywhere. Yeah? Uh, in England, our robins are this big, and they're loners. Yeah, they're, they're very hard to find. You have these beautiful goldfinches, bluebirds. You've got such colorful birds here. It is, for me, a new revelation of the, the creativity of the creator God. He reveals himself through nature. He reveals himself through scripture. He reveals himself through our personal experience. And what I find is that the older I get, yeah, the less... I am self-focused and wanting to know how God works through my experience, and that's important. It confirms. But I find that the older I get, the less I trust my experience, and the more I hunger for the clarity of who God is in his word. That's the broad trend I've seen in my life. But this is the promise that each of them, each one of us, each one of you, will know God for yourself. Individual experience. And then we come to the final one. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness. When you think of the first three clauses, you know, you can look in your experience and you can find evidence for it. Yeah? Can you find evidence that God is changing your attitudes? You can. You can ask, what was my attitude 20 years ago to such and such a subject? What's it today? And you can chart growth and you can say, yes, praise God, he is doing this. Where am I today? Amongst community. Is God blessing me with this second clause? Yes, here I am amongst his people. Do I know God? Well, I know more about him than I knew six months ago. More than five years ago, I can say, thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself. And what I know is, is that my prayer is, Lord, yeah, keep revealing yourself as long as I share you with others. That's I've seen the res- the, how it works. If we don't share him, he doesn't reveal so much. Yeah, you want more revelation, you share him more. I can see evidence of this in my life. But when it comes to the forgiveness of God, how do you know that God has forgiven you? Ellen White, in Steps to Christ and Christ's Object Lessons, she writes 
that when it comes to forgiveness, you have to take this by faith. How do you know that you are forgiven? Satan, what does he say? Uh, How on earth could Christ, who gave everything for you, forgive someone like you? Don't you know it's the 76th time you've done this sin? Let's be reasonable. He's a merciful God, but not this merciful. How do you know that God is keeping his side of the bargain here? You take it by faith. So those are a few words on these four statements. And let me, as I move to the end of my message this morning, share a few thoughts on how this shapes our Christian experience, the dynamics that it sets up. Uh, And where I'm getting this is from Hebrews 10. Because it's interesting, in Hebrews 10, the second reading of the covenant, what he does, he has the first clause, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he moves to the fourth clause. He's jumping from number one, I will write my laws in their hearts and minds. Number two, I will be their God and they will be my people. He drops that one. Number three, they shall each know me. He ignores that one. And then he jumps to number four. I will forgive their sins. Remember their iniquities no more. He jumps from number one to number four. And it would suggest to me that these two are a pair. And if these two are a pair... Maybe number two and number three, the second and third clause, are also a pair. And we should read them as being in tandem together. And if we do that, then what is the nature of our Christian experience? I would suggest it works like this. Is that transformation and forgiveness work hand in hand together? How does it work? Lord, write your values in my life. Where do you go to find those values? Broad, deep reading of Scripture. You find those values. You have a sense, yes, Lord, this is what I should be doing. Does it always work out in practice? No. And when we fall, what do we need? Forgiveness. Lord, help me. I know I should have done this, but I didn't, so please, I claim clause four. I claim your forgiveness. And then, after you have claimed forgiveness, do you just sit back and rest and think, well, that's that done? No. You come back to clause one and you say, thank you for giving me, Lord. Now, what I need you to do is to take your stylus out and write your laws once more on my mind and my heart. Write over them again. Because what happens if you have one without the other? If you have just the Lord writing his laws on your hearts and no forgiveness, what type of Christian do you end up with? A dry, law-focused, legalistic Christian where there is no joy and sense of liberation. You need this, but without this, boy, it's hard work. If you only have forgiveness 
and no laws on your hearts. Essentially, you become an antinomian Christian. I make up my Christian experience as I go along, and I create Christianity in my own image. In the end, God forgives me for everything, and I simply do whatever I want. The two have to go together. And it seems as if our Christian experience should be alternating back and forward. Lord, write your laws on my heart. I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. Write them again. Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. But slowly, as this process goes on, those laws are written deeper and deeper into our mind and into our heart. There is a transformation, and we're hardly aware of it. But we do it with the joy that we know that God is tender and merciful and leading us on this journey. What about these two middle clauses? Communal experience, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And individual experience, I think these go together. If we have communal experience, we're here in church but we don't have an individual experience of God, what does church become? It becomes a country club. It becomes a social club. I'm here as long as my friends are here, but uh, as soon as somebody says a nasty word for me, against me, I'm off. Down the road, there's a better country club where they're politer to me. They appreciate me for who I really am. If you have communal experience without Christian experience, the church is great as long as things go well. But when things get a little rocky, you tend to be out the front door. And I can assure you that when you go to the next country club, you will find the same thing will happen. And then the next one, and the next one, and the next one you will simply become a spiritual nomad. Individual experience without communal. What's the difficulty of this? Is that if we don't mix with the brethren, with the saints, is that the danger is, is that we just start listening to the voices in our head and we create God in our own image. We need each other to rub up against each other. A church with diversity is a harder church to worship in but it's a church which, if you're willing to put in the time and effort, you grow more. Transformation and forgiveness go hand in hand. Communal experience and individual experience go hand in hand. So, know your rights with God. How many times did Moses share the law with the people before they signed it? Twice. How many times have you heard the new covenant this morning? Twice. You have read the small print. My invitation to you is to sign on the dotted line. Be sprinkled with that covenant blood. Sign up for this. Know your rights. And now you have the right to get down on your knees and to pray, Lord, please write your laws on my heart. Please forgive me. Please, Lord, let me be part of your people. Please, Lord, let me know you for myself. These are your rights. He hasn't promised I'm going to win the lottery. 
But for me, this is a great place to start. You know, my recommendation to you is to learn the new covenant. May these words be written on your heart, just like the Lord's Prayer is, the Ten Commandments. This shapes your experience. It gives you certainty. I know where I stand before God, and I know my rights. And Lord, I'm going to hold you to account. And as I finish now, let me finish with this question. How do I know that God is going to keep his side of the bargain? Because this legal agreement is signed at the bottom in whose blood? In Jesus' blood. If he's willing to give his life to provide the blood to sign at the bottom, do you think he's going to hang back from keeping his side of the bargain? I don't think he is. I think we can, with faith and with confidence, say, Lord, You've promised to do these things, and I'm holding you to account. Not because I'm demanding my rights, but simply because I need him to do this in my life. Please, Lord. Downers Grove, I serve a wonderful Savior. He is the Son of Man who forgives sins. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He died and rose again. He's coming again, and he came to serve others. And here you have how he's going to serve you. Make sure you've taken the time to commit yourself to Jesus, just as he has committed himself to you. This is my prayer this morning. God bless.